Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today, we have an external guest on the show, Julia Kerkia, and she is the Executive Vice President of Strategy and Sustainability at BP. She talks to me today about the energy transition from an energy company perspective. Last year, BP announced a net zero target for the company, which was organized into five points. Net zero across BP's operations on an absolute basis by 2050 or sooner. Net zero on carbon in BP's oil and gas production on an absolute basis by 2050 or sooner. A 50% cut in the carbon intensity of products BP sells by 2050 or sooner. Installation of methane measurement at all of BP's major oil and gas processing sites by 2023 and to reduce methane intensity of their operations by 2050. And lastly, to increase the proportion of investment into non-oil and gas businesses over time. In order to accomplish these aims, a few new teams were formed, including a strategy and sustainability team that is led by Julia. So today we speak with Julia about BP and why she thinks they are well-positioned to achieve this important target, her views on some of the most discussed technologies in the energy transition, and a little bit about her and how she came to find herself last year in this newly formed role. BNEF research on the energy transition can be found on the Bloomberg Terminal at BNF Go, on BNF.com, or the BNF mobile app. As a quick reminder, we do not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a more complete disclaimer at the end of the show. And now, let's speak with Julia about the energy transition. Julia, thank you so much. It's really good to have you on the show today to talk about the future of the energy transition and oil and gas industry. Thank you very much, Nina, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love to start with your story and what originally drew you into the oil and gas industry and then how you ended up at BP, because you've spent most of your career working in the consulting with a number of different stakeholders. So let me start maybe by telling you a little bit more about myself and how I actually ended up joining BP. So I think there's like three defining things in uh, my life. I think the first one is I'm half Italian, half Belgian, grew up in London, then we moved to Italy from then Spain, Brussels, Spain. So I think change is really something which is ingrained in my DNA since I was a child. The second thing I would say is yeah, I had a pretty strong role model in my father who always told me to not confirm with my comfort zone. And so challenge is also something that has always been in my DNA. And the third thing is I have two little children, 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, who are actually quite demanding in their questions on the energy transition. 
And I remember this defining moment when I was working in uh, McKinsey, where we were looking at potential temperature pathways linked to potential energy transition paths. And there was this business as usual case, which took us to a pathway of more than three degrees by 2060. And I literally thought, well, 2060, my children will be in their 50s. And so I think that has actually contributed over time to build this significant sense of purpose. And yeah, I spent 15 years in McKinsey. I left the firm as a senior partner and I was leading the global downstream oil and gas practice, working quite extensively with clients to actually shape energy transition. And I loved it. And I think I learned a lot around how do you actually structure complex topics. But when BP approached me end of 2019 and Bernard approached me, I jumped on it and, you know, talk about, I said, I, I like change. There was a brutal change and it was even more of a change because then COVID actually hit immediately after me joining. You know, undeniably, it was one of the biggest challenges that one can think about in terms of our generation and probably the next generation to come. And uh, it was a huge privilege in terms of sense of purpose to actually have the ability to help contribute to shaping BP's journey through the energy transition. So, yeah, those are the reasons why I decided to join the oil and gas industry. And then BP, very specifically, I was immediately brought into the new purpose, reimagining energy for people on the planet, uh, which was at the time being shaped, the ambition. And then as I was talking to the TV leadership team, just the the buy-in from everybody on the willingness to actually embark on this. What is it about BP that you think differentiates them in this space and that it's it's quite progressive to say that you're that you think that an oil and gas firm is the exact right place to be in looking at decarbonization and the energy transition? I actually think that if we want to play a critical role getting to the Paris alignment and decarbonizing energy systems, we need to work with energy companies. I think that's the first element, which is you can't just decarbonize energy systems by working with green companies. But if we really want to get to the Paris alignment, we need to actually support companies such as ours, which, you know, energy plus industry plus transport represents 70% of global emissions. So we need to really work with companies such as BP and other oil and gas companies to actually help them decarbonize and go along that journey. So I I don't see joining a company such as BP and an oil and gas company, which is committed to actually decarbonizing as a progressive journey. I think it's actually very much aligned towards the ambition and the purpose. In terms of what is unique about BP, when I actually had my first conversations with Bernard at the time when I was actually considering joining, Bernard had already embarked on a series of multiple conversations with multiple types of stakeholders from institutional stakeholders, e.g. government stakeholders, with investors across the world and with, you know, less obvious stakeholders such as NGOs and some of the most challenging NGOs. So there was a whole process of listening which was going on. And that process of listening actually very much shaped his perspective and also the LT's perspective, the leadership team's perspective. So what I was actually struck by was the super strong alignment within the whole leadership team and within the company itself on this ambition to transition. You know, at the end of the day, if you're actually working in an oil and gas company and you're delivering energy 
to the world. Yeah, you, you also want to feel good about what you're doing. And inequivocally, we are delivering energy to the world. And in the frame of the energy transition, we have the capabilities and the skills to continue doing so through the energy transition and, uh, and towards a low carbon world. What sort of things have been done in order to drive a culture shift within the organization and to really rally around the net zero target? Or did it just really happen very organically at all levels of the business? Well, I think there were several initiatives, right? It all started with the announcement when Bernard started on February 12th of the new purpose, right? reimagining energy for people on the planet, the ambition and the aims, the net zero aims. That was Thereafter, if you wish, underpinned by the strategy, which was actually announced on August 4th and then detailed in September. It was also accompanied by a full reorganization of BP, which we call reinvent BP, which is really targeted towards moving away from the upstream downstream model to an organizational model, which aligns to the energy transition, right? With business lines, which are Production and operations were focused on our hydrocarbons businesses. Business line on gas and low carbon, which is really the growth engine in terms of low carbon. Customers and products, which is really focusing on the growth engine around customers. And then, you know, enablers in terms of trading, in terms of digital and region cities and solutions or integrators, as we call them. What that did was it really reframed the organization towards alignment with the strategy. So it was really all the building blocks that came together in terms of ambition, in terms of integrated strategy, in terms of organization supporting it. And then a lot of communication around cascading the story and implications for all of the different people in the organization. So if you are in production and operations business, yes, we might be in a world where towards 2030, we are reducing production by 40%. But you are literally funding the energy transition. So it really is a game of and. We need you to deliver today to be able to actually transition the company. So you have a fundamental role to play. At the same time, the growth engines need to deliver. So we really did an exercise of cascading that strategy into what does it mean for the different parts of the organization. So about a decade ago, BP was really pushing the limits in terms of a focus on sustainability with the Beyond Petroleum kind of ambitions and campaign. And since then, specifically focusing on kind of the renewable assets that BP had, many of them were sold off. And we went through this period where that was really not a favorable part of the industry for the business to be in. Now it seems like there's a look at renewables again. And my question in this really is, do you think that In order for an oil and gas firm to transition into an energy company, do you think that a large percentage of the revenues can actually come from renewables? Or is that not the right way to look at how the company is going to look to change and grow and diversify? There is no one size fits all strategy in terms of oil and gas companies decarbonizing. We've seen companies for example, in the US, actually focusing very heavily on carbon capture. We've seen other companies actually focusing more heavily on retail power to consumers. Our answer is one where we do see low carbon technologies altogether having to play a critical role in the energy transition. And I'm talking about really multiple technologies coming to play. So we have technologies which today, like renewables, are proven and are extremely cost competitive and the 
the, the challenge is one of how do you accelerate deployment of those technologies and roll out. So we're talking about moving from 150 gigawatts of added capacity in the, in the recent years to something like 350 or 550 in a well below two degree scenario or 1.5 degree scenario. We have other technologies that are proven but need to be scaled up. And this is, for example, hydrogen or carbon capture. We have technologies which are more at a pilot level, but might have a very critical role to play, for example, in decarbonizing aviation, such as synthetic fuels or e-fuels. And then we still have fossil fuels having to actually bridge the energy transition. And in particular, as an example, gas having to provide that firm capacity as renewables come in. So we don't see this as, do you need to invest in renewables for the sake of renewables? I think it really is a multi-technology strategy where one of the critical advantages that a company such as us can actually bring is the integration of all those different technologies to provide firm capacity in terms of energy and low carbon energy. So I don't think this is a renewables only play, but we definitely see in a world where renewables actually get to account to approximately 60% of power generation by 2050, renewables have a critical role to play and they can integrate into hydrogen, they can integrate with gas to provide that firm capacity. So it's really around that integration. And which of these technologies that are still, I mean, you're mentioning hydrogen and CCS and synthetic fuels, I mean, very much on the edge uh, in that they're quite expensive to deploy at this point in time. Which of these would you say you're most excited about and why from a technology standpoint? I'm really excited about this notion of multiple technologies and the integration across multiple technologies. Because if you think about it, you know, with renewable penetration increasing significantly, you have a challenge in terms of how do I provide flexibility and stability to the system? Batteries can provide it intraday. I need gas to back that or hydrogen as it actually accelerates to provide that flexible capacity. So it's really the first thing I would say is we're really excited about the integration of those technologies. We are there, uh, therefore also extremely excited about the renewable acceleration. We are very excited about hydrogen as a potential technology. Hydrogen could, as I was saying, get to account for approximately 20% of primary energy uh, in 2050. We're talking about increasing from 70 million tons per annum today in terms of hydrogen production to potentially in a 1.5 degree scenario, 600 or north of 600 in 2050. And 90% of that will have to be clean, be it blue or be it green. So I think that is an area in which we are very excited. We see obviously a need to abate the, the cost of hydrogen as we look towards 2030, the 2030s in a world where today blue hydrogen is more expensive than gray hydrogen and green hydrogen is more expensive than blue. And we expect it to be the case for until probably the mid, the early 2030s. Uh, so we will require support to accelerate hydrogen, but we think hydrogen will be a critical element to decarbonize hard to evade sectors. In that same line, I think CCS has a critical role to play. We see 5.5 gigatons of CO2 emissions uh, of CO2 to be captured through CCS in 2050 in a net zero scenario. The IEA just released a scenario which talks to 7.6 gigatons of uh, CO2 in a net zero scenario. So CCS, we think, has a critical role to play. And it also allows to actually half the cost of the energy transition 
as we try to align with the Paris Agreement. And it obviously has a critical role to play in terms of blue hydrogen. I think other technologies such as synfuels, e-fuels have a role to play. They are less mature and need to be proven, if you wish, in terms of uh, in terms of adoption. And I think they will take a bit longer in terms of adoption. So looking at these technologies, you did mention that some of them, some forms of hydrogen are more expensive than others and even more more still. So this requires investment and reinvestment into the business and into technologies and R&D. What has been the reception by the investment community and really those shareholders looking at BP saying, you know, maybe I'm not getting the same dividend payments that I was getting in the past? And, you know, yeah, really what has been the response regarding BP's net zero future? So I think the response has been very positive. It's been very positive across stakeholders. So it's been very positive for our employees who very much embarked on the new purpose and the new strategy. It's been very positive if you think about external stakeholders and NGOs. And I think in terms of investors, we've had a very positive response on the strategic direction and at the same time an acknowledgement that yeah, the focus now is very much on execution. And I think that's what we've been focused on. And the dialogue with investors is very much one of ongoing dialogue with individual investors, such as, as well as, um, uh, you know, Climate Action 100 plus. And yeah, just continuing to show those proof points, continuing to drive transparency and to some extent help our investors come with us on the journey. And this is also the reason why this year we've actually changed our disclosures to actually align also our disclosures to the new strategy so that we can actually help investors understand the value in the different elements of the strategy. Well, and this might be dry for many people, but really, if you're looking at this, the different frameworks are important. And the disclosure element is how you communicate with the investment community. I really want to know which frameworks you find to be most valuable and really give the most accurate view of what's actually happening. It is indeed an area in which we see quite a multitude of initiatives. So I think when when you try to answer that question, the way we actually tackle it is what are we trying to achieve in terms of uh, in terms of disclosures and metrics? If we try to answer that question, I think the first element is very much transparency so that we can create understanding for the investors, not only of the risks associated with a potential company and its transition strategy, but also the opportunities it actually is exposed to, as well as comparability across companies. So if those are the two objectives, then you get into, okay, so what do those disclosures actually need to have? And I think they need to be simple, yet not too simple, because I do acknowledge that oil and gas industry has a very complex value chain, and there is a risk of ultra simplification, and they need to be as much as possible standardized. And so when we look at disclosures, we very much favor disclosures, which obviously have a very strong element on in terms of carbon and by Carbon, we definitely include scope free because in our industry, very specifically, it represents 80 to 90% of total emissions and forward looking carbon metrics. So not only in terms of your own track record and position today, but you know, what are you actually aiming to or targeting to? We're looking for disclosures, which include financial lead indicators, which give an indication of how you're actually aiming to transition the company, such as, for instance, what's your share of capex into low carbon versus oil and gas. And we're looking for disclosures, which actually also allow us to showcase some of the qualitative elements, such as, you know, governance, board composition, incentives, efforts in terms of advocacy, 
So we're collaborating with many different initiatives. I would call out TCFD. I would call out, obviously, SASB, the IIGCC, so Net Zero Standard for Oil and Gas Companies, which we've worked very extensively with to try and actually shape what those forward-looking metrics could actually look like, in particular for the oil and gas industry. And this year, we will start also disclosing along CDP. So disclosure speaks to everyone in the community is really looking to better understand what's actually going on in terms of how you're going to get there and and where you are in the process. And you know, when I was asking about the traditional investors who maybe aren't keen on reinvestment, there's the other side. There's the ESG investors who are, or even a step further, the activist investors. And we've seen this recently with Exxon, where they ended up giving multiple board seats after substantial pressure from activist investors to take it a step further. In what areas are you getting pressure from ESG investors to do more that you know you think might be an interesting place to discover in the future that maybe BP is not yet ready for? We are very much engaging with ESG investors and non-ESG investors, by the way, as we navigate through the energy transition. And I would say the dialogue is a very rich dialogue, which has also allowed us to progress and progress together with our investors. So as an example, in 2019, we actually did a joint resolution with Climate Action 100+, which was a resolution on precisely disclosures and transparency. So I think that engagement is actually extremely helpful because we value the challenge, right? We value the challenge and the ability to actually, you know, take a step back, think through, do we have all the elements embedded within what we're aiming to do? And it was very much at the core towards one, the new ambition, the net zero aims, as well as the strategy that we actually announced. So we're actually very much looking forward to continue that engagement with individual investors, as well as with with organizations such as Climate Action 100 Plus, as we continue to execute on the strategy. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So switching tracks a little bit, we started off talking about you and then we went straight into the business. Let's go back to you and your role within the business. And and clearly, you know a lot in regard to, you have a lot to say, that's the right way to phrase it. You have a lot to say in regard to the different frameworks the company's looking at and your strategy. And you're in a role that is new for BP, is it not? And, and could you talk to us a little bit about what that role was designed to accomplish and, and how you see it fitting within the organization? It is indeed a new role and a new organization. It was created within the frame of the reorganization of BP as one of the integrators. And what we did through that role, the role is basically the strategy and sustainability organization of the group, is we very much concentrated within that organization the group strategy. So we no longer really have beyond operational strategy of strategy teams within the uh, different businesses. And the same is true for sustainability. So we were aiming for two things, I think. The first thing was really to bring together strategy and sustainability and policy linked to that. The reason being that 
as we navigate through the energy transition, and by the way, even more after 2020 and the COVID pandemic, the two are very much coming together. And a sustainable strategy is a strategy which is resilient for the future. So the first objective was to bring the two together. The second one was very much one of actually creating this central BP strategy and sustainability team, which would actually basically help the different businesses and organizations to craft a strategy which would actually take us through the energy transition and deliver on the aims which were announced by Bernard, really optimizing for the group, was breaking a little bit of maybe the upstream, downstream silo that could have been present in the past. So it's really an organization which is focused on working with all the different businesses and obviously finance and uh, and the functions to actually craft what's the optimal path. And that optimal path is really an optimal path in terms of delivering on the aims, the purpose and the ambition, but also delivering it performance today and our shareholder investor value proposition. So you joined, then there was a global pandemic. And how has that changed how you are getting your job done and maybe even just the scope of the role? Because surely, you know, the things that you were setting out initially to do have in some ways probably been modified by this. I joined indeed, and then the global pandemic hit. And, you know, what I thought was Indeed, a pretty interesting challenge became even more of a challenge because creating an organization and a strategy when you're working remotely and you do not know necessarily the team is not something which is the easiest task that one can actually lay out. It is actually quite incredible how the organization overall has adapted to the remote working and how incredibly efficient we have been in terms of actually really moving into virtual and driving the reorganization design and driving the strategy. I think what we've done through the pandemic is actually the detailed design of the organization. And that has slightly morphed as we were going through the detailed design, but it would have been the same with or without pandemic. I think what the pandemic actually did do is that through the pandemic, I think uh, we have witnessed an acceleration, at least in terms of momentum and intense in terms of energy transition. And so what the pandemic had actually done is it has, one, confirmed the strategy that we were shaping and two, helped us onboard the organization on the strategy and on the need to actually reorganize along the new uh, structure. So it sounds like you're actually fairly hopeful. And recently we looked, well, so some forecasts are showing that we may reach that 1.5 degree C before pre-industrial levels that the International Panel on Climate Change really put as this line in the sand regarding where we think we're going to start to see some more catastrophic responses to climate. Where do you have reasons to be hopeful within the oil and gas industry that we may be able to, you know, limit climate change to 1.5 C when it looks like that year is very, very near? I think the the challenge is indeed very big. At the same time, I am hopeful and I'm hopeful for several reasons. I'm hopeful, first of all, because I think the world is accelerating. It's accelerating in terms of definitely society towards the energy transition. It is accelerating towards, uh, in terms of regulatory frameworks, policy frameworks. I mean, let's not, you know, needless to mention the new, new US Green Deal, 
the UK 10-point plan, the EU 55% reduction ambition by 2030, China's carbon neutrality by 2060 and the recent announcements on coal. So I think altogether we are seeing an acceleration. We also seeing an acceleration as we discussed in terms of investor focus on the energy transition. And we're seeing an acceleration in terms of companies. I think in 2020 alone, we saw 1,500 new companies commit to net zero. We are seeing quite some momentum. The other reason why I'm hopeful is because I think we do have the technologies, right? And some of those technologies, as I was saying, are already extremely competitive, such as renewables. Other need to be proven at scale. I think the third reason I am actually hopeful is that we are seeing tremendous growth. So if I look at the last 10 years in terms of renewable penetration, we saw an average of 60 gigawatts added in terms of added capacity. In the last few years, we already reached 150 gigawatts. And yes, we need to ramp that up to more than 300 and 550 in a well below two degrees or 1.5 degree scenario, but it is still significant acceleration. If you look at CCS, I think there are 26 projects ongoing, uh, operating in terms of CCS. And in the last three years, there's been 30 announcements. So almost as many announcements in the last three years as we have projects operating to date. At the same time, it is a challenging journey. And I think a lot still needs to happen from a regulatory and policy standpoint to enable and accelerate the journey. To mention a few, we very much believe in the need for a global carbon economy system, which can actually accelerate the transition and in link to that carbon border adjustment so that that actually becomes more efficient and effective. We also need to have policy support for hard to abate sectors as they transition. And that can actually be either in the form of mandates or other structures. But if you think about hard to abate sectors, aviation, steel, cement, we will need to have support in terms of policy to make that happen. The ecosystem will also need to support what we call greening companies such as ours, as long as they're committed to transitioning, both because we need those emissions to actually reduce, but also just in terms of the sheer scale and size to actually drive the investment into the alternatives. So BP is not alone. I mean, the oil majors are looking at this and then getting pressure from the investment community, less so from the national oil companies that aren't getting that external pressure. In what ways is BP working directly with some of your competitors and other oil companies around the world, whether they be oil majors or NOCs, on sharing best practices or trying to find a path forward for these ambitions? Because to your point, the industry is going to need to move, not just BP. We are working indeed across companies to actually try to enable the transition. And that's a different level. So if I look at our efforts, clearly OGCI plays a role. It plays a role in terms of knowledge sharing and in particular around working among oil and gas companies to really set the standards and the ambitions in terms of how do you actually develop hydrocarbons business, which are really low emissions hydrocarbons business. So the OGCI, as an example, has invested with 19 investments into projects to reduce methane emissions, into projects to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, into projects to, to actually also look into accelerating technologies such as CCS, e.g. net zero T site, and also setting some of the ambitions, right? The methane intensity ambition of 0.2 
zero uh, percent is one example. So I think there is a collective industry effort in terms of actually within that focus, trying to set best practices, standards, and advance solutions towards lower emissions. So you mentioned methane, which I think is really interesting because there's so much fixation on the carbon aspect that it, methane is talked about so much less in many circles, but maybe not as much within the oil and gas space or the energy companies. Do you think that methane should be talked about more as a potent greenhouse gas or is the balance about right? I think there is quite a lot of focus on methane, at least within the oil and gas industry and, uh, and the energy sector. And yes, it is definitely a critical topic that we need to address. And it is one which we have actually framed as one of our aims. So our aim for within our net zero aims is very much around deploying measurement in terms of methane in our operating sites by 2023, and then aiming to actually half our methane intensity. And this is actually something which is quite unique because today, methane emissions are calculated on an estimated basis. So actually a shift from estimated basis to a measured basis is a very, very strong commitment. But there is significant collaboration within the industry. There is significant collaboration with organizations such as EDF in terms of setting the standards on methane and advocating for methane regulation. And I think there is quite a lot of also engagement with regulators to support methane regulation, both in um, in Europe as well as in uh, other geographies such as the US. One potential strategy for a company in order to have their company appear to be much more environmentally friendly is to sell off their most polluting assets. What is to stop companies from doing that? And where do you think there is a place for leadership in trying to make sure that that is you know, visible in the industry to the investors? I think divestments is, as we've uh, shared, one of the critical elements actually of our strategy. The way we actually look at divestments as one of the critical elements of the strategy is that divestments basically helps, in our case, advance the world towards net zero. And the reason for it is we're actually divesting assets and we are reinvesting the proceeds into creating a low carbon supply. So it's not divestment for the sake of divestments, it's really divestment and reinvestment into low carbon supply. And so that actually advances the world in the energy transition in the sense of actually bring in that capacity, that additional low carbon capacity and solution online. And I think it also enables BP to itself to advance towards its net zero aim and position in a world which is Paris aligned in the future. The world is very much evolving towards increasing transparency on emissions. So I don't really think there is a world where we can imagine uh, that, you know, buyers of potential divested assets will not be put on the, you know, transparency requirements in terms of emissions reporting and emissions progress. And while divestments do not take assets out of a system in terms of oil and gas production, I think it helps advance in the energy transition. I think it's also fair to say that if you look at scenarios and you look at a well below two degree scenario or 1.5 degree scenario, you still have in 2050, 20 to 40% of the primary energy mix, which is actually linked to oil and gas. So we will need oil and gas production as we transition. And, uh, and the question is, is really one of who's the best owner for the assets within the frame of the individual strategies. 
Well, and then the other question is for how long? So you have this 2050 net zero target, but where do you think the inflection points are? Because there has been some discussion around the fact that emissions today are much more impactful than emissions in three years, five years, 10 years. Where do you think the most important year is given that these are industries that take a long time to, to turn and to make these changes. So it can't be six months from now. What do you think is the biggest inflection point between now and 2050? We have very much shaped it with a short-term, medium-term, and long-term aim. So very concretely, you know, we have, if we look at our net zero aims, we have five aims which are focused on getting BP to net zero by 2050 or sooner. Aim one is very much around scope one and scope two from our own operations. Aim two is a carbon content of our oil and gas production. Aim three is around the intensity, the carbon intensity of our marketed products. Aim four is our methane intensity, as we discussed. And aim five is a lead indicator in terms of capex into low carbon. For each of those, we have set a 2025 target and we have set a 2030 aim on the way to the 2050 net zero aim. For me, in terms of reassuring investors in terms of, and and other stakeholders in terms of efforts and trajectories, but also just in terms of actually informing strategies, because a lot of the decisions that you make today uh, will be required to actually frame where you're trying to actually head to towards 2030 and uh, and towards 2050. We believe that in that frame, you actually do need to have short-term 2025 targets, medium-term as we describe them as being 10 years, 2030 aims, and then the longer-term objective. And and I think that's, you know, there's debate, but I think it actually aligns quite well with, for instance, when you look at some of the potential initiatives which are looking at a five-year and a 15, 10 to 15-year time frame. So it's impossible to think about the future as a parent without thinking about your kids. So you talked about your two young children. I've got two of them as well. They've been probing. They've been asking you very pointed questions, you said, around the future and climate and in your role. What advice have you given them regarding where they should be looking in terms of, you know, maybe their future careers or even education choices? Oh, <laughs> that's a tricky one. In, in full transparency, my, my children are actually looking into pretty different careers. So uh, one of them wants to be a criminologist. The other one wants to be a doctor. So it's very, it's actually pretty distant from uh, anything loosely related to the energy transition. No, but I think they, they do indeed have pretty probing questions. And the probing questions are literally around elements such as what car are you driving? And for the record, I don't have a car. Or how is recycling we do actually contributing? As an oil and gas company, what are you doing, right, in terms of energy transition? And and that is actually fueled by both their personal interests, but what they hear and what they actually also engage on as activity at school. So I think that's another reason to be hopeful, uh, Dana, which is I think the Generations to follow are very, very much focused in terms of energy transition, but also more generally sustainability, uh, also linked to just transition and other topics. I would certainly agree with that. They definitely have grown up with this as being a focus. So reason to be hopeful about the future. Well, Julia, thank you very much for sharing your vision for the future and what's going on at BP and then your personal journey with us here today. Thank you very much for having me, Dana. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. 
Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.